You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Episode 90, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Adam Rodman. Dr. Rodman is the host of the Bedside Rounds podcast, a fantastic podcast which I highly recommend you listen to, subscribe, and share with your friends. He's going to talk today about quinine and hydroxychloroquine as we try and focus on COVID a little bit and learn a little bit about the history of not only the Spanish flu epidemic and a little bit of this Russian flu, but also why hydroxychloroquine became a treatment of choice for some, and certainly with the initial regimens, uh, although it seems like most places have dropped hydroxychloroquine from their regimen uh, treating COVID. We'll even spend a little bit of time on social media in the 1918 Spanish flu and what was going on with wearing masks and not wearing masks, which I think you'll find amusing and have a lot of parallels with today. As always, the show notes can be found at theparadox.com slash 090, that's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. Please check it out for links to Adam's show and also the other things we discuss in the show that are pertinent to our discussion. I'd once again like to thank Feedspot for featuring The Paradox as one of the top 20 physician podcasts you need to listen to. I have no one to thank but all my fans and those of you who are sharing the show and listening every week. I really appreciate that. Your engagement has really helped the show grow and has made it a lot of fun for me to learn along with you. As you may know, too, in previous episodes, I've talked about how the fact that my family has been without health insurance now since November. That was an intentional move, actually, uh, through some strange circumstances through our work situation. But basically, we've been using a health sharing ministry. We've used Samaritans, which is a large national, I, mean, I think the millions of members uh, who participate in this, where instead of sending a check to an insurance company each month, instead we send a check to another couple which is kind of interesting because we find out what they're going through. We can send words of encouragement. And it feels like much more like a community than it does just sending a check to your <laughs> insurance company. Uh, so, And it's forced us as a family to really become consumers of the healthcare system. 
to be mindful of where we're getting our medications, where we're getting our testing, our how we're getting our care delivered. And it's made us better. I mean, I should know better as a physician, but it has made us, I think, more participatory in our healthcare. And, and that's been really great on a number of levels. Additionally, we've saved a tremendous amount of money, too. We've saved a, a couple thousand dollars this year uh, easily. Uh, we also have to have a physician, and so we have chosen to have a direct primary care physician, actually the doctor who is I interviewed in earlier episodes, Dr. Amat. But not only do we have better care, certainly primary care that we've had in the past, it has made us better consumers, better understanding of the healthcare system, and it, it's craziness. <laughs> and I would suggest that if you're thinking about it, curious, check out Samaritans. The link can be found at theparadox.com slash 090, or you can just certainly go to samaritanministries.org and find the website there. If you decide to sign up, I'd appreciate you typing in Eric Larson in the referral bar, and then absolutely get back to me later and tell me how your experience has been and whether it's been a good move for you financially and from a health standpoint, and if you've received better care and have a better understanding of the healthcare system. I also mentioned last week that I have some exciting news in the podcast world for the paradox as we move on to the next level of broadcasting, and that will be coming out in hopefully the end of this month or maybe even next month. I would ask that you please take a second right now and share this show with a friend or recommend it to a friend. It'd be much appreciated. If you're not actually a subscriber, please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player, whatever you're listening to today. That'd be much appreciated. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Adam Rodman, the host of the Bedside Rounds podcast, as we talk about pandemics in the past and today and why we're using hydroxychloroquine. Enjoy. Hey, this is Eric. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Adam Rodman. He's a physician in internal medicine in Beth Israel Deaconess. He also is the host of a fantastic podcast, Bedside Rounds. He's been doing it for a number of years, and I guess you could almost call yourself, aside from an educator for residents, you're probably a, you know amateur medical historian, right, of, of sorts? Yeah, I, I think that's fair, yeah, as long as we uh, focus on the amateur part. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm an amateur podcaster, although you know, I guess I get paid a, t- a couple of dollars a month to do this. That, um, but I wanted to have you on because you've done a lot of interesting research. I would recommend anyone who has not subscribed or listened to your show, absolutely check it out. It'll be in the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 090. Um, but I, we want to talk about, well, what I've avoided for the last two episodes, but I think I need to get back to, which is COVID-19. Yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, everybody kind of wants to talk about it, but everyone's sick of talking about it. But it just is so such a fluid and dynamic and just changing, um, you know, phenomenon in both in the United States and sort of globally. It's kind of hard not to try and figure things out because things really are changing from a treatment standpoint, from you know, epidemiological and, you know, our understanding of what's going on. And frankly, I think what I've talked about a number of times in sort of some Facebook posts too, is just a lack of humility, I think, by everybody from people who are experts to amateur epidemiologists, which is pretty much like anybody else. Um, just that we really don't understand much of anything at this point. And anyone who says anything with certainty, I think, is fooling themselves and other people. You're preaching to the choir here. Though I feel that way about much of medicine also, so... Yeah, well, and absolutely, too. And, you know, it's funny. One of the things, I, the points I make, too, is when you talk about humility in medicine, I mean, in many ways, I don't consider myself a scientist. I mean, I apply science to my, you know, what I'm doing. But every time I give a medication, I ha- it is a basically a science experiment. I have to decide if the medicine works and if how it works, how effectively it works, what the right dosing is. I mean, everyone based on their age and, you know, physiology, whatever, it totally, they're, they respond differently to things. I have a knowledge base where I know what a medicine is going to do for someone, but I can only guess what it's really going to do. I see what the results are. I can 
trick myself into thinking that it's working when it perhaps isn't. Uh, and then you have to, you always have to be skeptical of what you're doing. And I get, I think really have a lot of humility in the, in medicine to recognize when you might be going down the wrong path. Yeah. And your field is very interesting because you get immediate feedback or, or not immediate feedback, but much quicker feedback than we get in the internal medicine world where we're talking, you know, especially if we're talking about coronavirus, we're talking about waiting days or weeks theoretically to see a treatment effect. Yeah. There's absolutely a reason I went to anesthesia. It fits my personality. <laughs> I I tried doing primary care. I love like the aspect of getting to know people and really you know working with them, but to give someone a me blood pressure medication, say, well, I'm going to see you back in four weeks, and we're going to work on this for the next six months to get your blood pressure. I need to fix the blood pressure now. <laughs> if it's too low, I get it higher. If it's too high, I'll get it lower. I can't wait six months to fix it. So for me, it just fits my personality, and so that's kind of why I enjoy anesthesia. Uh, but let's talk about coronavirus. I, mean, I know you've you've just embarked. I guess in the beginning of when you're talking about the treatment and one of the big controversial treatments with coronavirus. And I would say controversial only because it's sort of strange to become politicized because of just the culture we have in the United States. Um, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, quinine, right? Why don't you give a little historical background, I guess, of, of what, why it exists, where it came from, I guess, uh, without getting too much detail. And then we'll sort of go from there. So, I'll, uh, I'm actually going to go backwards here rather than starting at the beginning. So in China, uh, in Wuhan, we, they started using hydroxychloroquine because it had been used during SARS. Um, and there was some experience using it during the SARS epidemic. Now, why did they use it in SARS? Well, they had a couple studies where they actually had in vitro, so with, um, with cells, looking at hydroxychloroquine, preventing the replication of SARS. So there's like, okay, there's a, there's a plausible theoretic reason. But then the next question has to be, well, hydroxychloroquine is a pretty uncontroversial anti-malarial drug. Uh, there's a lot of resistance, so we, we don't use it very much anymore. It's also used in rheumatologic conditions. Why, why did they start experimenting with hydroxychloroquine in, in SARS, right? It doesn't make right. sense. Um, so, the reason is that for about 60 years, you can actually trace it back to a, a nice study in 1946, but there were a couple studies of using chloroquine um, and then later hydroxychloroquine in influenza and other viral illnesses. So there's actually studies in HIV in the 80s and 90s. And before that, there's a lot of studies, not a lot, but there's some studies on influenza. And that was both in vitro and some in patients, nothing that would meet the muster of a, of a randomized control trial, of a, I should say of a modern randomized control trial. So if you read any of these review papers, it'll mention that, right? It'll go back to 1946 um, when, uh, I don't even remember the researcher's name, but essentially they were looking at influenza in checks. Um, and there was a slightly higher uh, improvement in the, uh, the chicks who got, I think, 325 milligrams of, uh, of quinine in particular. Um, and for most of, actually say for every review paper, this is where it stops. But what was going on in 1946 that made researchers think, oh, uh, why don't we try quinine in, uh, in influenza? And this is where things get really crazy because quinine and before that cinchona, uh, cinchona is the bark of uh, the tree cinchona officinalis, which is where, um, where we derive quinine from, was a traditional therapy for influenza stretching back hundreds of years. In fact, it's a traditional therapy for a lot of um, periodic febrile conditions. And in fact, in, uh, in East 
Germany in the 1950s, they were doing randomized controlled trials on quinine to see if it could treat influenza. And then you go back during the Spanish flu and quinine was like in San Francisco, they were spraying it in the air in public areas. They thought it worked so well. The Surgeon General of the United States came, um, well, he didn't come on, on television, that didn't exist. And he didn't go on the radio, <laughs> But he, uh, he released a press release that was read publicly and printed in a bunch of newspapers as a wire service, basically telling people quinine prophylaxis is the best treatment that we have for the flu. And then you go back even a little further and you see that in the Russian flu, so that's 1889, quinine was so in demand that druggists just sold out of it. There was no quinine left. No one could get it. And you slowly realize that the, the cultural context for how we're using hydroxychloroquine, this hope that we have of hydroxychloroquine is like tied up in hundreds of years of history that really goes back to how cinchona was used in the earliest days. Yeah, that's, I mean, fascinating. I, I, and I remember back in med school, not a whole lot when it comes to the, to quinine, but I mean, that was like, you know, the bark of a tree from South America and it was sort of an accidental discovery. I think I know I just listened to your last show. You were talking about how it was probably not discovered by the West, but it was known by the Incans. And um, it was sort of that they were very familiar with all the you know medicinal properties of many of the plants and, you know, animals that were in the Amazon. Um, and but then it was it feels like, you know, at some point. Well, I guess I would go back to 1980, uh, just in the sense that I talked to someone who was practicing medicine before then. And he said it was actually relatively easy to be an internist and have a clinical practice, an outpatient practice, and a hospital practice, because really, there are only about 20 medications that you had to know in 1980. There, there just weren't many anti, you know, antihypertensive medications. There weren't many you know, antibiotics. And so you could actually have a fairly decent grasp of you know, all the medicines that are available to treat people. Whereas now, it's impossible. I mean, I mean, how many antihypertensive medications are in combinations? There have got to be well over 100. And you know, I, to make it easy on me, I only, I only become very familiar with a couple in each class. Right. That's, that's yeah, what you right. got to do. Exactly. I mean, the fact there are even classes, right? I mean, there were maybe one or two classes back in the 80s. And so, and so then you go back even further to, say, the turn of the century in 1900 or run. I mean, how many medications were actually around that were even effective? There weren't Ooh, that many, right? That's a great right? question. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so 1900 is interesting, right? Because this is the uh, this is when efficacy is in full bloom, right? So even if you read, say, Osler's Principles of Practice of Medicine, he'll uh, he lists lots of therapies. He's just really skeptical about whether or not they work. There's only a couple things that people were really confident that they were. So Oliver Wendell Holmes gave a speech, and this is about therapeutic nihilism, which is this big movement in American medicine, Germanic and American medicine, and like the uh, the late 19th century, this idea that the healing power of nature, like we get better on our own and medicine just either does nothing or makes us worse. And he said, if the whole of the materia medica could be thrown into the ocean, and then he lists a couple things that, that work and one of them is morphine. And he said, it would be all the better for humankind and all the worst for the fishes. It's a great quote. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, on some level you can say, well, that does make sense because most of the therapies we provide are ones that allow people the time or ability for their body to cure themselves, right? I mean, you know, your wound doesn't close. Sure, someone sews you back together after there's after you've had a surgery, but your body has to close that wound, right? I mean, so in some ways you are, you know, the medications are a way of temporizing and keeping you stable enough so that your body has a chance to heal itself. Um, but obviously that's the thought that, you know, no medicine works. And that you would hear it most... You feel like you'd read things in the 1700s and eight, and where people would say they were skeptical of going to a doctor because you you might as well 
at that point, you sort of accept that you're going to die, right? You're almost worse off going to see the doctor. Yes, people felt very conflicted. No, so funny enough, people loved bloodletting. Uh, doctors would not perform the bloodletting. So people would go to their barber surgeons and get bloodlet. Everyone loved that. But people thought that the medications that doctors would prescribe were particularly horrible. Hey, it depends on where and when. But um, I mean, it's an interesting thing is that our profession uh, was, I don't want to say it was high status, but you know, in the early 19th century, I think it was not a given that we would attain the status that we would today. Yeah, well, clearly. I mean, because when you look at the success rates, I mean, and, and the understanding of disease processes was was so poor on lots of things. Well, I, I think, you know, going back to quinine and you look at malaria, it's become a treatment for, it was a the dominant treatment for malaria for uh, forever. And it was, uh, but that was because we didn't know what malaria was. We yeah. had no idea what it, right? I mean, you didn't even know for sure. You just had a fever and like we didn't know it was a parasitic infection like we do now. Uh, why don't you go through sort of the equina and how sort of malaria, how that sort of just began? Oh, yeah. So a uh, fever is, uh, now we consider fever a symptom, right? We'd say fever is a symptom of malaria. But the traditional Western conception of fever, and I'm oversimplifying here, is that fever itself was a disease. Um, and I'd say around the 18th century, we started to realize that, well, not fever may be a disease, but there are different subcategories of that. And one of those was what we call um, cyclical fevers. Um, and they, they had fancy names for them, tertians and quartans. So fevers that occurred every 48 hours and fevers that occurred every 72 hours. Um, and this is where the, the story of cinchona gets really interesting because um, probably Plasmodium vivax uh, was endemic in South America for a long time, and um, probably cinchona bark was a traditional treatment uh, for that in the, that the Incas used. And the Jesuits kind of discovered this or got it from the Inca and brought it over to Europe. And this is, a, I think this is really cool. Uh, the Schedula Romana was essentially, do you know what the Materia Medica is? Have you, have you heard that phrase before? I, I've not, but I, it sounds old. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a cool, it's just Latin, everything in Latin sounds really cool. It sounds like a spell book, but it's a, a list. It's a, like an approved list of all the therapies that you could use. So um, <clears throat> up until like the late 19th century, even in England, they would call it the Materia Medica. Um, so the, the church, the um, Catholic church had their version of this. And um, they calculated how much cinchona you would need to cure a periodic fever. And funny enough, our dosing of quinine today, which is uh, uh, five grains or 325 milligrams, is exactly the same. And then you had this kind of slow process as, as people got more experience with the drug throughout Europe and the rest of the world and realized, oh, well, these tertians and quartans, they actually respond to, um, to quinine. And you had this new idea of a disease defined by its treatment, right? That malaria was a, um, was a periodic fever that responded to quinine or cinchona. Mm-hmm. And just to, to be clear, for people who may not know, Plasmodium is a is a parasite. It's it's borne by mosquitoes, as most people probably know that you get mosquito bites and it carries it. And it's very complicated and sort of I don't remember. I remember learning in medical school, but it's like they're basically it's intermittent sort of release of stuff in your body that causes a fever response. And it lyses your blood cells on a regular, uh, exactly on a regular schedule, which is why you get the cyclical fevers and vivax and ovalia every two days and. Um, Falciparum's every three. Right. So there's three different ones that can cause what we call classically malaria. Um, and that there's certain people who have uh, genetic disorders, we would call them generally, but who actually have some, maybe some resistance to this, uh, this, you know, sickle selling and um, what is it, GPC, GP 
G6D or something. Yeah, G6P deficiency, and then there's also there uh, dark negativity. Um, and that's actually how they uh, they looked. So geneticists looked for evidence of like pre-Columbian malaria, essentially looking at native Amerindian populations, and they didn't find no sickle cell trait, no dark negativity, no G6PD, suggesting that there wasn't a lot of evolutionary pressure from falciparum, at least. So, so yeah, right. So that's why they felt that it was it somehow brought to South and Central America through the slave trade, yeah. Europeans or somewhere probably else, the slave yeah. trade. Yeah. Uh, so we have this, we have this medication quinine and hydroxychloroquine and, and chloroquine, which are derivatives of it. And somehow it, it's found to be perhaps effective during flu and infection. And so it gets to SARS and then of course coronavirus. And so then it became this, this thing. I mean, I don't exactly know how it happened, but, uh, there are some people who are advocating, who are big advocates for it, said it was very, you know, game changer kind of drug. Right. Um, and what is you're an internist you're taking care of you've taken care of a lot of coronavirus patients i know in boston what's your impression of it i mean what and can you kind of get a feel for what happened as far as the hydroxychloroquine with the studies and you know the retractions now with the new england journal i mean there's probably a lot of stuff that's a yeah, lot of i mean do you mean what is my opinion of it now or what was my because boston was hit relatively early so i was treating yeah. coronavirus patients at the end of march so what was so when okay so in march when you're first you're the, you're sort of the first wave right you're seeing the patients you're guessing based on sort of loose knowledge from China and from Europe and how to treat this. What was your original armamentarium? I mean, how were you treating coronavirus you know, when the first people first came? Yeah. So that's, so we had, um, we had a multidisciplinary panel at the Beth Israel and helped develop treatment guidelines and hydroxychloroquine was in those treatment guidelines. Um, the treatment guidelines also had the boosted uh, lopinavir, so lopinavir-ritonavir combination. Um, what else did they have in them? I think that was, I think those were the big things, lopinavir, ritonavir, and then hydroxychloroquine. And they were based mostly on clinical experience from our colleagues in China and then in Lombardy. Right. And, and how has that changed in two months since? I mean, I, I know you're probably not treating as many coronavirus patients right now. But... I haven't admitted a coronavirus patient in a month. It's so different here now. April was really scary, but things are, I, things are kind of back to normal. So what are the guidelines now? What are your guidelines now when, you know, second wave comes or whatever? Has it, has it changed your clinical experience? And yeah, so it changed. First of all, I'll, I'll go out and say that I'm not really a guideline person. So I think our guidelines, (laughs) um, I, I mean, that's not true. I shouldn't say that there are times when I follow guidelines, but I, I think the fear, well, I'll just say what we do now. So now after that New England Journal trial on boosted uh, lopinavir uh, was published and showed no mortality benefit, everyone stopped using lopinavir. Um, and lopinavir is an HIV medication. Um, remdesivir, we, we were a remdesivir trial site, but now uh, after the remdesivir trial was published, remdesivir is part of our uh, treatment guideline. And hydroxychloroquine has now, I mean, it's totally been dropped from the, the treatment guideline. Uh, uh, no one uses hydroxychloroquine. And I suspect we haven't, I mean, fortunately, we don't have any coronavirus, but I suspect that we'll be treating everybody who requires oxygen with dexamethasone. At least I know that I will be. Yeah. Well, I mean, that seems like that's, there's no magic bullet, but it certainly seems like it's effective medic. It's certainly effective medication on some level, right? I mean, with yeah, the, and with such a good, I mean, it was six milligrams of dexamethasone uh, for 10 days in the recovery trial. Like we internists throw steroids at people for much, oh, much less than that. <laughs> Well, I mean, and yeah, and I give it all the time in the operating room as well for surgical patients for, you know, for both pain and also for, um, you know, 
anti-emesis. Um, yeah, yeah, we do that in oncology a lot. Yeah, so so the hydroxychloroquine came. It was a theory that people were definitely champions of it early. The president notably came became a champion. And I feel like as soon as the president came out and said, it's a you know game changer medication. I don't remember exactly what his terminology was, but it the the medication became political, which is really weird because you don't really see that very often in medicine. Like a yeah, and right. not just the medication. What was super weird to me is it wasn't just the medicine that uh, that became political, but this, but epistemology, and in particular, this idea of efficacy. That suddenly, like talking about how we, uh, how doctors know a treatment is efficacious, is a is a political question, which it is absolutely not. It is, in fact, a very well. I don't. I think it's very interesting, but to most people, it's very boring. Yeah. Well, and and it's and I think you really be, it becomes very dip, tricky knowing what efficacy is. I mean. It's always the we always seem to have these things in medicine where we have a medication we find some sort of use for it in a very limited in a sort of a specific population, and I think you know beta blockers were a good example where we it worked in this one group and we said oh so we extrapolate out to pretty much like everybody should be on a beta blocker and uh, and then you find out that actually that's not the case yeah right? so like heart attacks right that's the classic thing we reported we used to put everybody who had an MI on a beta blocker for life. Um, and the best data we have now suggests that it's not definitely not necessary. Right. And, and then it increase your risk of strokes and other, and other, um, and mortality. Right. I mean, if you, but we have, and so, and I, it's always hard when you have these, when you have a medication trying to give to a group, because the problem is you don't give medications to groups, you give medications to a person. And just like I'm in the operating room, when I have one patient in front of me, I'm just treating that one patient. Uh, I can have general ideas of what things are going to, be effective and work, but I can't, you know, you, just, you can't know um, until we have better, I don't know, genetic markers or some sort of way of knowing ahead of time what medications can work for certain people, but. Absolutely. Like you and I would have no problem giving someone dexamethasone because the risk of that is so small. You, there's hardly anything to worry about. Whereas, you know, even I guess you could say quinine or hydroxychloroquine, there's, you know, QT interval changes and there's, there's some sort of risks involved. And so you would think twice maybe about giving things. And I think you also have to think about the, uh, like when this is why the, I, I am generally a big critic of the, what the epistemology pyramid, the EBM pyramid. Um, but that's evidence-based medicine for <laughs> Oh yeah, evidence-based medicine, which oh, I'll describe the pyramid. It, it suggests that there is a hierarchy of evidence with meta-analysis at the top. Below that is um, below that is randomized control trials. And then I have no idea how they decided what goes in the other rungs, but <laughs> yeah, it's right. like a case control trial, a uh, cross-sectional trial, and they, uh, but in reality, like there's no easy shortcuts to this, right? If you have a, there, there are very, very well done randomized control trials, and there are horrible randomized control trials. There are very, very well done retrospective trials that do their best to minimize uh, bias, and then there are terrible ones. So there's no easy out. You can't just say, oh, there was a trial, so this is good. It, it makes it very difficult. Yeah, and it's it's tricky because fu ultimately, fundamentally, your your chance of, of responding to your therapy is zero or 100%. I mean, there's no, you don't, you know, there's no halfway for most people. It's like, it, should I get this colonoscopy? Well, you know, you don't care what the overall rate of, you know, 
finding of some sort of disease is, you want to know, are they going to find disease in you, right? And the problem is you just don't know. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is now getting into really uh, meta-epistemology. This is the nosologic paradigm versus the diagnostic paradigm. So the idea that there's either an on-off state or if there's a a spectrum of disease. Um, And the reality is that, I mean, we like to pretend that this isn't the case, but for a lot of things, there probably is a spectrum of disease. And also patients don't really care about that. They don't care about like what you're going to do to them and if you're going to make them better. And so the, the so with the whole thing with hydroxychloroquine, not only did it become politicized, but then it's sort of there's there was like this rush to have I want to say rush and maybe that's not fair, but it felt like there was this rush to studies, and that's partly because we're trying to find a therapy that's effective for coronavirus. Um, but I felt like there's a rush for hydroxychloroquine in some ways to almost make it seem like it wasn't effective, whether it is or isn't, you know. Um, and obviously, it seems like you didn't think it was that helpful. Uh, since you're not uh, yeah in my because i used it in the beginning of the pandemic i certainly is was no certainly was no miracle and i i think the weight of the evidence especially the prophylactic trial now is suggesting that it's probably not helpful it's also probably not very harmful but right yeah it's probably not very helpful right so uh so what do you what do you make of the whole thing that happened with the new, new england journal of medicine and lancet both had to oh, retract the right so it, it they sort of went up went against their sort of policies for, I mean, usually data, they have to have it transparent and discoverable data, and it wasn't initially, uh, which is sort of against their editorial policy. They still published the studies, and then they had to retract them a couple weeks later. It it was very weird. I mean, I don't quite understand how that happened. I don't, so I don't either, right? This is, I, um, th- this is my opinion, because I don't, I don't know a lot about exactly what happened, but this, like the fact, it's, seems like it was fraud, right? Like these numbers were purely yeah. made up by Surgisphere. Um, super sketchy. And that it in, in brought in both the Lancet and the New England Journal. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, I, people from the beginning, I mean, this is one reason I love Twitter. From the beginning, people were like, there is something really fishy here. Like how, I, so I used to work in Southern Africa and I remember um, in Botswana. And I remember that one of the complaints was that in Western Africa, they were able to detect a side effect of uh, greater than six seconds of VT on EKG. And that is the most laughable thing I've ever heard. As if there are telemetry beds in Western Africa. I mean, there may be some, but <laughs> like that, that idea is just so, they, they don't have telemetry. Where do you think uh, coronavirus is? Um, when it, People like to compare it to the, this pan, pandemic of the influenza in 1920 or 1918, 1916. Um, and it's obviously a different type of virus, but the world has changed so, so much in 100 years. It's really kind of hard to to comprehend on many levels. I mean, I so you probably don't know this. Uh, my A lot of my listeners do. that. So we lost uh, our son uh, two years ago in a car accident. Oh, my God. I'm um, sorry. He's, it's yeah. horrible. Thanks. Uh, and actually, if you listen to the show at the end of the show, he's singing a solo. Um, so I, at the end oh. of my show. Uh, but I feel like, uh, you know, losing a child now isn't completely different than it would be. It would have been 100 years ago in 1920, 1910. Uh, I mean, people certainly have grief and mourn the loss of, of children. But there was, a, you know, there's an ex- not an expectation, but it certainly was much more common. And so and so the the element of risk that people accept is different then than it is now. Like, you know, you can say they may show pictures of or how people behaved or pictures of what people were doing back in the pandemic then. I mean, one, there's probably less you could do anyway if someone went to the hospital. But also, I think just the, 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 the idea of what 
I guess the expectation for life and how long you'd live was just different back then. And so you can't immediately compare how things were in either either era, like today or then, right? I mean, don't you think that's... Oof, that's such a good question. So one of... One of... 1918 is pretty recent, but let's go back to, because infant mortality was actually not terrible in 1918. They were doing a lot better. Um, but let's say like 300 years ago. So go back to the 1700s. One of the, one of the big questions that historians have always addressed is how, how did parents react to the death of children? Because you can imagine there's not really, like, this, this is kind of, um, I, I don't, I'm using the word vulgar in the sense of, of being common, right? This is like vulgar history. It's not things that, that people wrote down. So historians right. have tried to, uh, have tried to understand how people felt about the loss of children. And um, it, it was complicated, right? Because there wasn't, you know, there was an expectation that uh, a certain number of children would not make it to adulthood. And um, there was, there were coping mechanisms for that. But there was also very, very deep grief. Um, I think that it, it's hard for us. Have, have you ever heard the saying like the past is a foreign country? Yeah, oh, yes. I mean, I think it's hard for us moderns to to understand and to I, I shouldn't say us moderns, but in the in the twenty first century to to understand the mix of emotions of like knowing that you and I'm saying this as a as a father and uh, soon to be a father of two, um, but uh, to know that your child very well may very well may die, but also being entirely emotionally affected by that, and I, I don't know how to quantify or compare that. Yeah, I and I can't guess. It, I all I can say is that I think you know the. The prevalence of death and the understanding that it happens at, to young or was more accepted or more, um, you know, was more common. That well, people what, just, right? So I will influence, let's talk about influenza in particular, because yes. uh, you, you can read, I mean, there's textbooks from that period. So like Osler's Principles and Practice of Medicine. Um, the understanding was that kids didn't die from influenza. Uh, people weren't really worried about children dying. They were worried about the elderly dying. And this is in an era where uh, Osler famously called pneumonia the old man's friend in, uh, in his textbook. Um, so people, I mean, I would say people took influenza seriously. I don't know that they were worried about their children. Um, what made the 1918 flu so dramatic and so horrible was that it killed young, young people, not children, but young adults. And then moving to today, you mentioned you haven't had an admission in a, in a month in uh, yeah. Boston. I think, you know, um, we, on the east side of the state in Detroit, we had a significant, you know, surge of coronavirus, or what do you want to call it? We never saw it on the west side. We never saw it really most of the state of Michigan. Uh, it was just actually just, and, in the, and it in seems- the dense areas, right? Well, I mean, you know, we're pretty urban and pretty densely populated too in certain other places, but for whatever reason, it just kind of- it, it strikes, it seems like a strange disease in how it's been presenting. And this is just because I'm dumb. And when it comes to epidemiology and this sort of pandemics, uh, because it seems like it's, it's like a just weird sort of focuses on places that there's no particular reason that, that, you know, why it was New York and not Chicago or why it was, yeah, you know, right. Right. Why, right. I mean, it's like you would say if it was, it's hard and it's hard to get a feel for. And I think this is what makes it difficult for people to know what to do because. Or, or Lombardy, right? I think that's what, what yeah, was special right. about Lombardy rather than the rest of Italy. Right. Um, Why not Rome? Right. Um, Lombardy, in fact, is a, uh, is a relatively wealthy region. Uh, why did Southern Italy, which is much poorer, not get hit much harder? And I, I don't know the answer. I don't think we'll know the answer for that for a while. Yeah. And I wonder if we ever will. Right. I mean, it, you wonder if it's more of a super spreader event or something like that, but it makes it really tricky and it makes it very hard for people to know how to respond and how to prepare. 
uh, both from the medical community and, and you have, and the, I think, you know, the strategy for how to, to deal with it. What was it, what was it like in, during the Spanish flu? I mean, where, was there this sort of, I don't want to say hysteria, but it feels like, with maybe social media, it definitely feels more like a hysteria all the time where people are so afraid they're not going to the emergency rooms. They're not, you know, they've completely changed their behaviors. Uh, was it like that in, during the Spanish flu? So interestingly, not really, because the U.S. was at war and there were strict press controls. Uh, it, more interestingly, um, during the Russian flu, so 1889, um, the, there, there was a panic. Actually, there were there were people writing op-eds about the media panic terrifying people. And the Russian flu was also relatively mild compared to the Spanish flu. I'd say that uh, tight media controls kept those sorts of articles from uh, from spreading. But certainly, like, people had daily newspapers, evening newspapers, uh, single areas of a city would have newspapers. So it, it was, when you read, like, when you go back and read the original sources, it's actually kind of similar to Twitter. It's, it's pretty interesting to read. <laughs> Where do you um, where do you see the the treatment for coronavirus? Where do you see us going in the next six months? I mean, you're you're obviously teaching residents. It's probably radically changed the you know the medical student interactions, the the resident interactions with PPE. I know for us here at, with our Michigan State medical students, they actually stopped medical school and they didn't have any medical students in the hospital for a while, which I think is same here, right? I mean, in the sense that we never really had it come. <laughs> It was. It's actually kind of a tragedy that they they sort of miss out on opportunities for doing things because you know there's, you know that sort of thing. It happens once in a lifetime. Oh, I feel horrible for the medical students. Right. I mean, I think the only possible justification for that is a a PPE justification, which in the early days of the pandemic was true. Um, The risk one, I don't buy as much because I mean they're becoming doctors. Uh, I, so I felt really bad for the medical students. Right. I mean, you have to you sort of are expected to take care of whatever. And so if you're not, if you're never exposed to it, what better opportunity than in sort of a big crisis situation to really understand what it's like to be a physician and to learn how to manage, you know, treating diseases and large complex Also the good teams. news is it appears that we're not really getting sick at work, right? It appears that doctors are getting sick from their communities like everybody else. So yeah, that, uh, that makes me feel a lot better going to work these days. Well, and that was definitely a huge concern within anesthesia, obviously, because we're manipulating the airway and, yeah. um, uh, my impression is it's, you know, it's not been as big a deal. Uh, there are certain cases where people talk about e- special ENT surgeries where um, they're working the sinuses and everybody got infected despite having all the, the PPEs because there's some, you know, massive viral load potentially in them. But that's... And those are the horror stories you hear from Lombardy when they were using a lot of CPAP on, uh, on patients with a lot of aerosolization and a lot of healthcare workers were getting sick. Right. Yeah, and I wonder too. So when you have the next wave come through Boston, let's say in next month, uh, yeah, right, right, knock on wood. Uh, your treatments can be different. So you're you're going to have dexamethasone. You're probably going to be very slow to intubate people. I imagine you're going to yeah. be people much more likely in oxygen. Try and keep them home as much as you can. Send them home with oxygen. Right. Try and treat people out of the hospital. Exactly. Exactly. Try to keep them out of the hospital. And also one of the things, I mean, coronavirus is a weird disease. We've seen, or I've seen personally so much late thrombotic complications. So being very aware that these patients get DVTs and PEs relatively easily. And I mean, have you, have you considered personally like thought, hmm, maybe I should just take a baby aspirin a day or. Oh, for myself or if I had coronavirus. No, for yourself. I mean, just, you know, as a prophylactic thing. 
I, this, no, no, I haven't. Uh, this gets down into my, uh, my bugaboo about uh, like nosology and pulmonary embolism. I mean, we, we diagnose many more pulmonary emboli and we use old data to determine what the outcomes are. So like in these sub-segmental PE that I'm picking up, I suspect, uh, and, and there's some guidelines now backing this up, but I suspect that most of them would be fine without treatment. What are your thoughts of, on the history and how, is there anything else in history for treatment of, you know, other viruses, the pandemic of, you know, the influenza that would guide us or be useful for us to in either from a, you know, culturally to help us or either, because I think probably medically there's not, but, you know, from a medical system, maybe, is there something that we, some lessons we can learn aside from the fact that, yes, this will end at some point. We just need to recognize it'll it'll come to a close. Yeah, I mean, so the, the big caveat is, as you mentioned, whenever you're looking at a past society, you have to be really careful of making comparisons because we live in a, a very different world. Uh, that being said, like 1918 was, a you know, medicine was scientific then. Um, there was a lot of international trade. Uh, there was a huge war going on. So that kind of confused everything. But uh, I, I think we can draw some lessons and, and none of them are particularly good. And that <laughs> that's that it's going to it's going to take a while. Um, probably when the death gets really bad, the only thing you can do is to shut down and you'll probably have to shut down multiple times. And it's really depressing. Yeah. Well, my hope is that maybe we could, everyone just would wear masks and we'd be okay. And, yeah. Uh, uh, and a slow burn. They, uh, they, you know, there's some interesting times. So when you, when you read some of these newspaper articles, it's such a parallel to today. So in San Francisco, uh, they had, they had a mandatory mask policy and they were really aggressive back then. So like police would go around and even if you just pulled down your mask to smoke a cigarette, they'd hit you with a fine. And then they'd also <laughs> take people to jail, which was very counterproductive. But there was an anti-mask league in San Francisco using very similar arguments to today. And it's like, these parallels, I mean, when you talk about like using this obsession over quinine, um, the, the masks, the anti-mask league, you're like, huh, we didn't change all that much. The lockdowns. Are you saying people are just kind of people? Yeah, people people are people and we don't really learn. Yeah, it, it is funny. You know, that's the one thing when you study history or read historical, you know, well, I mean, you could read the Bible and a lot of the stuff there sounds like stuff that you've you know, it's happening today, right? People aren't any different as far as, you know, the, all the human emotions and all those things. That's what makes it so interesting, right? I mean, you, right. you get to travel to another place and try to understand who people who are not the same, but similar to you uh, felt and reacted. Well, I really appreciate the conversation. It was really fantastic. I, and I look forward to the next two episodes. I think the next two are going to be on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. So I yeah, encourage the next to... one. The next one is about the flu in particular. Um, and then the third one goes deep into hydroxychloroquine and this idea of, of efficacy, like how do we truly know that a drug is efficacious? What is our treatment threshold? And what, how, how do we judge our priors based on that? So really like into the nerdy, you know, patients don't, again, patients don't usually care about this stuff. They just care about like, are you going to treat me? Are you going to make me feel better? But as an internist, all I found all this stuff fascinating. This is also why you're in internal medicine and I'm in anesthesia. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where, where's a great place for people to follow you on social media? And um, obviously check out your website. And that, again, that link will be on the, the show Yeah, page. so the website's bedsiderounds.org. You can find the podcast anywhere. It's called Bedside Rounds. Um, if you're an internist listening to this podcast, you can get CME <laughs> credit from it uh, through the ACP. And, I, I, yeah. and uh, I'm on Adam Rodman MD is my Twitter account. Well, Dr. Rodman, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. 
If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>